(laughs) This morning we will be in the 43rd Psalm. We'll be getting back on track in our study in the Psalms this morning. So please open your Bibles to Psalm 43. Now as we jump back into the study of the Psalms, uh, we've, we've been out of them for a couple of months And so as we get back into the study of the Psalms, I want to take a minute and kind of help us have a helpful hermeneutic or a helpful study of the Psalter. I think this will help us this morning. And the person that I want to introduce you to this morning is a man by the name of Athanasius. Athanasius was a fourth century church father who is known for his emphasis on helping people understand who the Son of God was. He spent time uh, arguing against the Arians who believed that Jesus Christ was a created being instead of eternally God. And this was Athanasius's call for his entire life that he was focusing on this. But he had another thing that he really enjoyed. He really enjoyed the Psalter, the Psalms. He loved the Psalms, and, and this is Uh, from a letter that he wrote to a man uh, that he was discipling. He said this, Now my son, it is necessary for each of the readers of that book, the Psalter, to read it in its entirety, for truly the things in it are divinely inspired. But then to take the benefits from these as from the fruits of a garden on which he may cast his gaze when the need arises. For I believe that the whole human existence, both the dispositions of the soul and the movements of the thoughts, have been measured out and encompassed in those very words of the Psalter. So this morning, I want, as you look at Psalm 43, to not just think of it in its historical context, not to just look at it and say, okay, what are the words and meanings here? What is the the historical context that can help me in my life? But I want you to take it like it is a fruit in a garden that you're walking along and saying, this fruit will help me in this case. And these circumstances that I'm feeling this morning or I'm walking through, whether they be sufferings, whether they be sin that you're dealing with, whether it's the oppression of the enemy or or whatever it might be, that you would cast your eyes upon Psalm 43 and that you would take it and that you would use it not just to read over, but that you would actually use it as your own prayer back to God. So this morning then, I want you to hear from the infallible, the inerrant, all-sufficient, inspired Word of God. Hear the Word of God this morning. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation, and my God. Thus ends the reading of the word 
of God. Now, as we think of Psalm 43 this morning, I want to just point your attention to there's no author. In the superscript, it doesn't tell us who the author is, and it, and it doesn't say to be set to the tune of whatever, right? As you may have seen in the other Psalms that we have studied. And the reason is, and in fact, this only happens a few times in the Psalter, is because of its close proximity and its close meaning to Psalm 42, You'll see that same refrain that was used in Psalm 42 when we studied it two months ago. I know you guys memorized it, so it's already there. You can remember. But that same thing, why are you cast down, O my soul? It's picked up in Psalm 43, and in fact, it ends Psalm 43. So 42 and 43 are kind of like a unit. So when we look at it as a unit, it's the same author. It's the sons of Korah. Okay, and it's the same context in which we found uh, the author of that psalm in Psalm 42, which means he has been exiled. He's under oppression of the enemy. He's not actually in the land of God with the people of God, worshiping in the temple of God. That's not what he's doing right now, and so he's crying out. And what's, what's beautiful and helpful for us, as Athanasius said, as we gaze upon this fruit in the garden for our own life, is that his prayer hasn't been answered yet. These two psalms, typically we, we, we want to read a psalm and then we want to be encouraged and say, my prayers will be answered and everything will be okay. And that's not where he's at. In fact, he begins with vindication, asking God, save me from this, because he has not yet been saved. So this morning, we're going to break up Psalm 43 into three sections. We're going to break it up into verses 1 and 2. We're going to break it into verses 3 and 4, and then 5. Okay, there's only five verses. Hopefully, we'll get out of here uh, sometime this evening. I'm just kidding. But what we're going to do with those three verses or three sections is that we're going to follow what the psalmist does. He actually gives us three imperatives in this psalm that help lead us through the psalm. The very beginning begins with vindicate me. And then we'll see in verse three, send out your light and your truth. And then finally, in verse five, we'll read hope in God. So these are going to be kind of our three sections that we are going to use to helpfully unpack this beautiful fruit in the garden for our use. So he begins then, the psalmist, with vindicate me. So we see that, like I said, in this psalm, he has not been delivered from oppression yet. And he begins with a command to God, which should just make us shiver. But this is part of our prayer life, that we would actually command God to do what he said he would do. We would call out to him and say, be faithful to your promises. And so this psalmist says, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. So when we look at vindicate, I want you to know that this word in the Hebrew doesn't just mean vindicate. Uh, it, it actually means to judge or to administer justice or deliver. And so maybe that's a more helpful way to understand what vindication means. And in all instances of this word being used in the Psalms, in all the instances, it's in relation to the psalmist crying out about the ungodly and the wicked. He's always calling out for the ungodly and the wicked, that God would prove the psalmist righteous against his enemies, that God would administer justice to them in their oppressive situation. 
The psalmist is also asking God not to uh, judge him according to just his deeds. I, I think us as, as um, people who believe in the depravity of man or the sinfulness of man, we get real scared when we say, God, judge me. And maybe you this morning sitting in those seats would say, I don't know if I'm ready to pray that prayer. I don't know if I'm ready for God to say, judge me this morning for all my sins that I've committed. It might make you a little bit uneasy. But the reality is, if we are a Christian, we can pray this prayer in the fact that we have already been judged. We have the blood of Christ upon us. And so when God looks at us to judge us, he doesn't judge us by our merits. He judges us by Christ's. So that is all the vindication we could ever hope for and pray for. But this psalmist, when he's calling out for vindication, he's not just saying, look at me and how holy I am. He's saying, look at these ungodly people and how they are oppressing your people, God. You are our God. You need to do something. Deliver us from ungodly people. And he, and he unpacks what ungodly people are. Well, if you're ungodly, you're, you're deceitful, you're liars, you're unjust, meaning you don't hold to the righteousness of God or the Ten Commandments, God's law. You don't hold to God's law. So if you're ungodly, then you're obviously unjust and you're deceitful. And he's crying out, God, deliver me. And he's feeling this rejection. This is why we love the Psalms so much. Like he said, uh, uh, Athanasius said in the beginning, it has every turn of our heart. It, it, it describes every way that we are feeling. Because in verse 2, after he's crying out for this deliverance from this ungodly people, he says, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why am I here? Why am I still feeling this suffering? Why am I still having this oppression? You're my refuge. Be my deliverer. Allow me to run to you, to take solace in your wings. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? I think for a lot of people in our world, they can actually pray this prayer. They can actually say, I'm being oppressed. I think of the churches in China and North Korea and what they're experiencing on a daily basis and how they are feeling the oppression of deceitful and unjust people constantly oppressing them. We can think of it even in our own cases about what the world may be doing to us at this very moment or what we may be experiencing, this feeling of rejection. But the beauty of the Psalms is that it usually moves us. It doesn't just keep us there. Although if you go back and read Psalm 42 this afternoon, it stayed there. It was talking about the depths of grief, of sadness, and how we can be there for long periods of time. But Psalm 43, although it's connected to Psalm 42, it's starting to move. It's starting to move the psalmist into a different place because he moves from this uh, feeling of oppression and mourning and wanting to take refuge in God to calling out for a petition to God. This is where it just gets really exciting. Send out is our next imperative. So if you're taking notes, the first one was vindicate, judge, administer justice. The second one is send out. And what is the psalmist asking God to send out? He's saying, send out your light 
and your truth. Now, I think this is poetic language, kind of describing the same thing, but we're going to take a few examples from the Psalms and go and look at what these two words typically mean. When we are talking about these two words, uh, I'll just give you a little hint. Typically, it's helping the psalmist or, or whoever is reading, it's helping them understand the deliverance of God by an actual experience of God and also God's word. So, so let's go. Let's, let's look at a few psalms here this morning. Psalm 18 and verse 28 is the first place we'll look, and we're going to kind of do these rapid fire. So if you can't catch up with me, that's okay. Just take note of these verses and go back and read them this afternoon or, or through your own devotional. Psalm 18, verse 28 says, For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. God is a lamp to his people's feet, to his covenantal people's feet. He is a lamp. He is a guide. He is a deliverer. He leads his people. So we see in this light, it's a deliverance. It's a leading. Another place, and this is a great psalm that, you know, should take you just a minute or two to read. Psalm 119 I think it's only got 160-something verses. It's quick. You can get through it. But Psalm 119, verse 105, in a similar fashion, says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So we're seeing that light, and light is used many more times, friends, uh, in the Psalms. But what I'm trying to help you see is this idea of being led. Other times it just literally means it lit up something, uh, or, or it's even talking about our life that we have in God. But this light is a lamp to our feet. It is something that helps us understand where we are to go in the darkness, and it is God himself. And then we go to truth. So jumping back again, Psalm 19 is such a beautiful psalm to understand the word of God. Psalm 19, in in verse 9, we read, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So if we're thinking about this truth that is being sent out, friends, the only truth that you can rely on as being foundational is God's word. If you rely on any other sort of truth to lead you and guide you in whatever circumstance that you're in, it will not be trustworthy or as trustworthy as the word of God. Now you said, Andrew, it just said the rules of the Lord are true. Well, all of Psalm 19 is actually talking about two things, natural revelation or general revelation, and then special revelation. And in these verses, we read the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord is pure. We keep seeing over and over again till we get to our verse, the rules of the Lord are true. This is talking about God's word being true and perfect and good for you in whatever circumstance you find yourself in. So now let's go to Psalm 25. Again, this is just a smattering, an overview. Psalm 25, 5 says, lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day long. David here is asking God to send his truth, his words to teach him. Psalm 86.11. And if anything, you've got lots of psalms to go back and read through this afternoon. 
Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And then finally, back to Psalm 119. Again, I told you we'd be jumping around, so take notes of these and you can go back. Psalm 119, verse 60 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Send out your light and truth. The psalmist is asking for him to be led by God's word, by knowing God. He wants to be led, but where does he want to be led to? Right? He's, he's exiled, we talked about in Psalm 42. Where does he want to go? Where does he want to be led to? Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Friends, God is continually in the business of leading his people. We see in the very beginning with Abraham, Abraham was being led by God. We see with Moses that Moses was being led by God. We see the people of Israel were being led by God to leave Egypt and go out on this exodus to the promised land. We see that same people after a long period of time being led back from exile. And then ultimately we see the people of God being led back by Jesus Christ. We are are so thankful that we have a God who is always in the business of leading his people. But specifically, the psalmist is asking, let me go back to the land of where I'm from. Send out your light and your truth to bring me back to the temple. Because if you remember these sons of Korah, what was their purpose? What were they to do? They were from the lines of the Levitical priests. And these Levitical priests, their line, their specific duty in temple worship was leading the people in song. Bring me back. Bring me back, God. Lead me back by your word, by your presence. Lead me back to your holy hill, to your dwelling, where I can be, as Psalm 42 said, before the face of God. We see that God continues to do this. We see that the story of redemptive history is always God calling his people back, God leading his people by light and truth, God leading his people by his steadfast love. Exodus 15, 13 is this beautiful song of Moses as he's being led by God to lead the people as he sings this to God. And he says in verse 13, you have led and your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. He's always leading his people back to him. That's where he's calling his people to. Out of whatever exile, out of whatever oppression, out of whatever suffering, out of whatever grief, God is always calling his people back to him by his steadfast love. This should remind us of Psalm 42 again. And if you're looking at your Bibles, I hope this verse is underlined because I yelled at you two months ago to underline this verse. I told you if you had not underlined verse 42.8, do it now. And so if you still haven't, underline it again, right? Because it says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love 
And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. This idea that the Lord Yahweh, this is God's covenantal love, or his his covenantal name, he is sending out his covenantal love every day to his covenantal people. He is calling out every day with his covenantal people to lead his covenantal people back to him by his covenantal love. This reminds us that he sends out this steadfast love every day to accomplish his purpose, his task. Psalm 57, 3 says, He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. God continues to lead his people back by his steadfast love. And friends, it accumulates all the way until God, in redemptive history, sends his very son to be light and truth and to send people back to himself. We read in John chapter 1, verse 4, In him Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Picking up in verse 9, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God leads his people back to himself all throughout redemptive history. I think the psalmist was picking up on this, maybe not looking forward to Jesus, maybe looking forward to Jesus at that point, but specifically thinking about all of the redemptive history, all of the patriarchs that he could go back and see that God leads his people. But then we get this verse, right? So, so he says uh, in, in verse four, then I will go to the altar of God. I'm gonna skip a little part. And I will praise you with lyre, O God, my God. So I want you to see the conditional aspect here. He's saying, send me your light and your truth. Lead me back to your holy hill that I may praise and worship you. There's a conditional aspect. He wants to be able to worship God in the temple of God, with the people of God, in the land of God. He wants to be back there worshiping God, doing his very task. But I want you to pick up on this reality To God, my exceeding joy. Then I will go to the altar of God, and there's there's a comma here, and it says, to God, my exceeding joy. Then another comma, and then it picks up with what he was talking about, the conditionality. Friends, I'm going to assert this morning that this little line that we just read, to God, my exceeding joy, was not conditional upon him coming back but was just the reality of who he knew God to be and that this God, no matter what circumstance he was in, no matter amidst any type of darkness, his exceeding joy was found in God. So let's look 
at joy. Let's, let's unpack joy for a moment. When we look at the word joy, uh, other words, synonyms that you can think of for joy would be things like delight or desire or, or pleasure. Uh, I like this word, jubilance. I like these exciting words, and and we we see that joy is just this deep desire that gets met, and then it it, it turns, it gives you happiness. It gives you light. It gives you excitement, this idea of joy. Now, I think there's a really good secular definition in Merriam-Webster dictionary about joy. It says this. It says, the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or listen to this part, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. Ooh, that one cut a little too close to home, right? Because I want you to see that the psalmist, who is surrounded by unjust liars, who hated God and were oppressing God's people, the thing that he was really wanting, the prospect of the thing that he really longed for, was not just deliverance, but was God himself. He wanted to experience God. He wanted to love God. In fact, he did. That's why he was able to say to my God, my exceeding joy. Sometimes I think suffering and oppression and grief actually help us by melting away the dross in our life that would make us think of the thing that we really wanted. We really want success. We really want um, to have uh, the and I might offend people here, we really want the perfect homestead. We want all the things right. We want to be able to survive uh, and when the nuclear fallout happens by ourselves and on our own land. And as that starts to develop, we have this joy because our desire is in these things that will sustain us uh, when the end of the world happens. And that's what brings us happiness. That's the thing that we can't wait to talk about with our friends uh, after we leave this place. And I just want to ask you, friends, I want to ask you right now, take a second if you're a note taker, and I want you to write out honestly, I want you to write out when you think of this definition, the emotion evoked by the prospect of possessing what one desires, I want you to write out what that is. Right now, take a minute. I want you to write out what is that one thing that would evoke that deep joy in your heart. I don't see a bunch of people writing, so I'm assuming you didn't bring a pen, and you're just thinking in your head, and you've got it in your head, okay? And if you got it in your head right now, or if you've written it down, if it doesn't say God, repent. If God's not that thing, repent. As I did this week, as I was studying, Okay, I'm not some guy up here who doesn't have the same struggles, doesn't do the same things that you're doing, but if you look at that sentence and there's something other than God, you missed it. This is what the psalmist wants more than anything. 
He just wants God. He just wants that experience with God. He just wants to desire God. I don't want to get too John Piper on you up here, but I want to look at maybe a a, a Christian definition of joy. Joy is an emotional experience that wells up in the heart of someone who experiences God and his salvation and is typically expressed in praise, adoration, and song. Joy is an emotional experience that wells up in the heart of someone who experiences God and his salvation and is typically expressed in praise, adoration, and song. Now, there's a good book. Um, it's so good I can't remember its name. I think I got a note. Um, Character Matters, Shepherding and the Fruit of the Spirit by Aaron Menikoff. And he has this really kind of weird thing to make you think about this. Um, he says to stop looking for joy. You're kind of like, what? We're actually commanded in Scripture to be joyful. Did you, did you realize that? Philippians 4, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. It's, it's actually a command. You're, you're told that you're supposed to, to have joy. And, and if you look at Galatians 5, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Well, it's love, joy, peace. I heard somebody saying it. Good job. Way to go. It, it is. It's love, joy, patience, patience. Whoa, I'm getting them all mixed up, but you, you know where they are. Go to, go to Galatians 5. But one of them is joy. This is a very identity of a Christian. And sometimes when we are in the darkness, how do we have this exceeding joy? How do we long after God? The psalmist is, is helping us here. In fact, he's going to go to hope in a second. But how do we find our exceeding joy in God? Friends, this is why I I, I read Athanasius in the beginning. It's that we would go to songs like this when we don't have the words, when we don't have the joy, and we would pray them back to God. That he would send out his light and his truth. That we would experience God by his light and that we would know him by his truth. And in that, the joy would start to well up. Because as we seek God in his word, it stirs up in us a joy that we can't find by ourselves. The Holy Spirit brings it to us as a sweet ministry in remembering Christ our Savior. So as we think of this exceeding joy, which by the way, in the Hebrew, just means this joy, joy. It almost justifies that I've got that joy, joy, joy song, right? Down in my heart. It's biblical. It's right here. I've got that joy, joy. And actually the NIV does a really good job. It says, I have to my God my delight and my joy. One of those words just helping us understand what God should be in our heart in that first place. But I've spent too much time here as we look at this. So we, we see one of our imperatives, vindicate me, right? Administer justice, deliver me, God. The second one is send out your light and your truth so I may experience it, so that I be, may, may be led back 
to your home, to you, to this right relationship with you. And then we come to the final imperative, the one that we have to ground ourselves in, which is hope in God. How do we have exceeding joy amidst the darkness of our sin that plagues us? In the marriage that we wish was better, but our sin that keeps coming between us? in our idolatry of work, and we neglect the other things that God has called us to in our life, or in our deep grief of missing those we love. We look to verse 5. We look to verse 5, not because it reminds us of Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, we have this idea of the depths of the sea, that we're at the bottom and seaweeds over our head. The breakers are crashing over us. It's the pinnacle of grief. But now in Psalm 43, we're seeing movement where it's almost like he's saying verse 5 differently. He's not repeating it like he did in Psalm 42 in the depths of his grief, but it's almost like he has this expectation of hope where he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. There is a joy in the hope of God's salvation and how he will save us. Some of us in our small groups are going through a book called The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. I think it's a great book to look upon to understand who God is and how helpful he is when we unpack how big God is, right? When we try to think of someone we hope in, we don't think of the weakest person on the face of the earth that can't do anything. We're not like, man, I'm really going to hope in that guy because he's really going to help me out when I need somebody to deliver me from something. That's not typically who we look to. We look to the strong leader, who uh, has been battle-tested and can lead us through into triumph. That's the person that we have more hope in. And friends, I just want to help you see that the more you know God by his word that he sent out to you to know, the more that we know that God, the more that we trust him in life's sufferings and circumstances. George Swinock, Swinock, I don't know, He's dead. He won't, he won't mind that I messed that up. Um, he's, a, he's a Puritan. And he has another wonderful book that I'm going to look up the name so I don't get it wrong. The Blessed and Boundless God. It's on the same lines of A.W. Pink's book. But at the end of this book, he emphasizes after going through all the attributes of God, all of these awesome attributes, he, he, just, he just spends so much time on them. And then he comes to how does this affect the Christian? Knowing God, what does that do to the Christian? It's a small book. It's less than 200 pages, I think. I picked it up this week as I was studying. You should go read that book. It's really helpful. And here's a quote in what he says. God's excellency calls for incomparable trust. The more powerful and faithful a person is, the more firmly we trust him. God is incomparable in power and faithfulness. Therefore, he deserves our surest love and our firmest faith. We must esteem his words as good as deeds, and we must rely on all his promises as if they were already fulfilled. We rejoice and hope 
of the good things promised as if we already possessed them. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying some sort of health and wealth prosperity gospel here. I'm just saying the more you know God, the more you can trust him. The more you read his word and experience him by his Holy Spirit as you're in that word and come to trust him, the more that you can hope and the more that you can have this welling up of an exceeding joy, no matter how dark the day may be. Another thing in hope. Uh, I was studying a couple of weeks ago with a friend. We're going through a book, A Theology of Biblical Counseling. And there was an attribute that me and him had hadn't really heard of before, and it kind of took us aback, and it was this idea of omnisapience, staring at him. Uh, and, and as we looked to this word, we'd, we'd never heard of it. I've, I've, you know, I'm, I'm a little nerdy. I go through some systematic theologies. I like them. Um, and, and this was new to me. And what he said really just floored us, which was God never makes a wrong decision. God always makes the right decision. Sometimes we go, what? Was that really it? Was that the right decision? But if God is who he says he is, if God is the boundless fountain of mercy and grace, we can hope and we can trust in him because he is more powerful and more faithful than anything we could ever comprehend. He always makes the right decision. So we end this psalm with no resolution, right? We, we, we're seeing a difference, I think. I think we can gather that from the psalmist. We're seeing a difference, but there is no resolution yet, friends, which is another helpful way that Athanasius reminds us to look at this fruit in this garden and ponder it as our prayers have not yet been answered, as the circumstances of our life keep beating down on us. We look to this fruit of Psalm 43 and we can hold it and treasure it and we can pray it back to our God because it is helpful in our time of need. Though the prayer has not been answered, there is a hope that God will be the psalmist's salvation again because he has been before. He recalls the wonderful deeds of the Lord and he looks forward to praising, adoring, and singing to the Lord once more. In fact, the psalmist ends with a triumphant hope. No longer have the depths passed over his head. The psalmist has cried for justice, for God to work, to do and administer his justice. He has asked for God to send out his light and his truth to lead him back to his exceeding joy so that he can once again hope in his salvation. But friends, as we take this psalm and as we look at it and as we treasure it and as we are on this side of the redemption of Jesus Christ, I want you to see that verse 3 has so much more, so much more application for you. The fact is, is that God has sent out his light and in his truth. When we looked at John 1, it said that very thing. I'm going to read it again. John chapter 1 in verse 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything made that was made. Not anything that was made was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true life, which gives light to everyone, jump to verse 9, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and to his own people he did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the Son of the only glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus says in John 14 that he is the way, the truth, and the light, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. So, friend, if you're sitting here in this church this morning, you are invited by a friend, or you've been faking your Christianity for a long period of time, I want you to hear this morning, in Psalm 43, what the psalmist was crying out for God to do. He was crying out for God to pour his wrath on an unbelieving people, on a people who were oppressing God's people. He wanted God to crush his enemy. And friend, if you are not in Christ this morning, you are that ungodly man. And if you say that you're not, you're lying. You're deceitful, right? Which is what he uses to unpack the ungodly man. And then he says the ungodly man is unjust because the ungodly man cannot follow God's law, those Ten Commandments, perfectly. In fact, he messes them up all the time. He needs a redeemer. If you, friend, are in here this morning, if you are one of those people who have been saying that you're a Christian and you are not, you know deep down in your soul that you are not, hear this morning that God has sent his light, he has sent his truth, and the person of Jesus Christ. And the person who has dwelt among us in the flesh, that he was that perfect one who obeyed the law, was completely just, that he can, like no other person can, lead you back to the dwelling place of God. He can lead you back before the face of God by his perfect life. And all that is called upon you this morning is to believe in his name. And in doing that, he makes you a child of God. Friends, where can you find any more exceeding joy than actually having God look at you and calling you son or daughter? There is no better joy that you can found, find. All of the world's joys will flee from you in the end. They will not sustain you like God's joy can. Friends, as I come to a close, Christ longs to mediate for you, believer, you believer who is struggling, he longs to mediate on your behalf. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. If you are in the darkness, if you are in grief, if you are suffering from the effects of your own sin, friend, here's a real easy thing to do. Pray to Christ. Seek him at his throne where he is willing to dispense mercy upon mercy for people. This might feel like the Sunday school answer, but it's because you don't know Jesus if you don't know that you can beg at his throne and he is willing to dispense mercy after mercy for you. In fact, he longs for you to approach him as he is the most approachable person in the universe. In history, Christ is gentle and lowly in heart and beckons you to come to him. Friends, if you're in that darkness and that is not enough, Christ is our hope in his second coming. Oh, the joy in the prospect of possessing Christ in the flesh at his second coming. Oh, that we would have a joy that is stoked in our heart like nothing else. And finally, let me end with an ancient hymn written by Bernard of Clairvaux back in the 12th century. He wrote this, Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men. From the best bliss that earth imparts, we turned unfilled to thee again. Thy truth and change hath ever stood. Thou savest those that on thee call. To them that seek thee, thou art good. To them that find thee, all in all. We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. Our restless spirits yearn for thee wherever our changeful lot is cast. Glad when thy gracious smile we see, best when our faith can hold thee fast. O Jesus, ever with us stay, make all our moments calm and bright. Chase the dark night of sin away. Shed over the world thy holy light. Let's pray. O God, our God, we pray to you, asking that you would renew in us a joy again. That our circumstances, though they may bring a dark cloud or, or that our comforts may bring a cloud over our joy in you, Father, would you strip them away? Would you help us see that our joy is found in you alone? That we seek the prospect of possessing you and more of you as we learn more about you, as we as we long for your light to lead us to your dwelling place, as we long for your truth to guide our path, to be the lamp. Father, may our, may our love be in you. May our exceeding joy be found in you this morning. And it is in Christ's name we pray, our light, our truth, our anchor amidst the storm. Amen. Please stand.